our job when we have a kid that we think isn't interested in anything is to become educated on what they're actually interested in and how to support them. Because there's no person that isn't interested in anything. Of course, we have people who are um, neurologically different than others. Like we're all neurologically different, but when we talk about neurodiverse children, for example, um, their needs will be different. Um, the type of support may be different, but there's no one, if the adults know how to support an environment for self-directed learning, there's no kid, whether they're considered sharp inside of the schoolish system or not, that doesn't respond to having the space to explore and express themselves. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. I recorded this episode with Akila Richards before coronavirus became a global pandemic and before so many schools were trying to meet the needs of their students through distance and remote learning and so many parents were stuck at home with their children trying to figure out how to best navigate the school situation when they were not able to get their kids to school. So what I discussed with Akila was new to me at the time but seems even more relevant now that nobody has an institution to go to, at least most people in the country right now in the U.S. and and many places abroad don't have an institution where their kids are going to every day and school may look really different when it gets back into session eventually. So these ideas for unschooling and for allowing your child's interest and natural curiosity to guide their learning might be really helpful. I hope you like this episode. Today I'm speaking with Akila Richards. She is the host of Fair of the Free Child podcast and founder of Raising Free People Network. Welcome, Akila. Thank you, Ronit. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. So can you talk a little bit about what the aim of Fair of the Free Child podcast is? Absolutely. It is to amplify the voices and center the experiences of Black people, uh, non-Indigenous Black people, and people of color who choose unconventional education, things like unschooling and other forms of self-directed education in particular. That's the focus. Okay. Yeah. That kind of education is not to be confused with homeschooling. Correct. Specifically because generally, and even though homeschoolers love homeschoolers, we were one for a minute, (laughs) um, oftentimes homeschoolers end up transitioning into a more organic form of learning that isn't school at Mm -hmm. home. But generally, homeschooling is school at Mm -hmm. home in terms of having a predetermined curricula uh, or curriculum or maybe pulling from multiple curricula and having specific ideas of things that children should learn and requiring them to learn those things. Whereas with unschooling, um, adults don't take the approach that there are specific things that children should learn, but instead that if we are partners in their learning experience, then they will excel because human beings want to learn and learning is a natural part of 
living. So to borrow from a guy named Ken Danford, schooling, like learning is everywhere. Mm -hmm. Learning is natural and schooling is optional. Mm. And, And how old is the unschooling ethos or movement officially? Oh, I have no idea. It's super old. It's the original thing. If I was mm-hmm. to say it um, when, it would be that's the beginning. We we transitioned into coercive learning, but unschooling is the original way in terms of intergenerational um, living and learning together, children opting into learning more about specific things based on their own inclinations mm-hmm. and interests. So it is the original mm-hmm. way. School is what's relatively mm-hmm. new. And and yeah. would you say that in your experience and from your view, school, traditional school necessarily is coercive? Yes. And so much so, Ronit, that I never use the term traditional school. I use the term conventional because School is not tradition. It, you know, as I mentioned, historically, humans have um, a history and a pattern of not forcing, quote unquote, learning, but recognizing it and nurturing mm-hmm. it. And so, yeah, I think that schooling is the design of it is inherently coercive, manipulative, oppressive, toxic for a lot of people. And it often um as the design of it was meant to do, it really effectively separates people from culture and community. Wow. So that that is a thought that I've never had. I, I, I never recognized that. When did you first realize that that resonated with you? Um, so <laughs> there's this thing called school wounds, W-O-U-N-D-S. And it's a tricky question because I recognized it in my own childhood, you know, a lot of us have our own school wounds that we can draw upon to think about the ways that being in a schooled environment was harmful for us. So I recognized it in my own life, but it didn't lead us to shift over to something else until Chris, my partner, and I had our daughters, Marley and Sage. And it was when they were in elementary school, really very early on, by the time Marley got to second grade, uh, we were done mm. <laughs> because we started to really see the um, the ways that even though she and then her sister, who they're very close in age, they were excelling academically and were very much celebrated by the school. And they got the labels of gifted and talented. And, uh, you know, Marley was in the second grade technically, but she was actually enrolled in the fourth mm. grade um, by the time we were done. And they had created um, a curriculum for both girls, two separate ones that were that met them where they were academically, mm-hmm. but emotionally they were doing the opposite. They were shrinking. Uh, Marley, who had a very, you know, just, just precocious child, this you know big personality, loved to ask questions and was super curious and you know just was interesting to be around. Became very different. She became really nervous about asking the wrong questions mm. and very conscious around about how other adults were viewing her and even a little judgy about other kids who couldn't read or mm. who didn't get the same special treatment that she and her sister were getting. Um, and then Sage, who is a comfortable introvert, 
of course, schoolishness doesn't really support introversion. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be charismatic mm-hmm. and you're supposed to. So she just she had this phrase that she used that she said, they keep peopling on me and I don't like <laughs> it. And for us, <laughs> you know, first we're like, oh, honey, that's adorable. No, that's life. You got to learn how to be uh-huh. with people. And but after a while, we realized, oh, my God, like she the, the way that she terms it is like something is being done to her. Something is being put mm-hmm. on her without her permission and what a horrible thing to experience every day and to have the people who you trust the most your parents to dismiss it repeatedly Mm -hmm. and so marley would say i have so many thoughts and i don't have time to think my thoughts and and after a while we said what if what if they're right like what if this isn't what they're supposed to be doing and eventually we listened and so we broke them out of school prison and started homeschooling what state was that catalyst experience? Georgia. It was in Georgia. And mm-hmm. you did not grow up, you didn't grow up in Georgia. You grew up in Jamaica, right? Correct. And I, I left Jamaica when I was about 10 and then moved to Florida. So okay. I went to high school in Florida, but I moved to Georgia for college and then, you know, ended up staying here. So while. were your parents aware of your own school wounds? Sure. Like most parents are, but it, but it didn't, we as a society tend to view that as normal. You know, it's like, well, yeah, you know, these are things that are happening in life and this is where you get the practice because you probably mm-hmm. won't like your job either and you won't like, <laughs> you know, so it's it's basically... Get used to it. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's preparation for all of the other ways that we um, surrender ourselves to systemic pressures to be and do and show up very differently than who we actually are. Mm-hmm. And what were your wounds like when you when you think back on them? What were the the most defining ones? Oh man, um, so many of them have been highlighted as a result of unschooling. So the first one is many of us can um, relate to this one too: the feeling of needing to have the answers, right? Mm-hmm. So we know as as um, students we are rewarded for having the right answers um, or even sounding like we have the right answers. So a big part of what I learned how to do as a stellar student was to always seem like I had the right answers, even if I didn't actually have them. You know, Mm -hmm. if you just said it nicely or said it a certain way, you were able to rely on that. And so, of course, as you become an adult, you recognize that that's problematic. And then when you become a parent, even more so. So Mm -hmm. one of the major ones was this idea that I needed to have things figured out all the time or have answers or sound or seem like the solver of the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, also the, the sense that the external validation, you know, the, the reality that because of school and because of grades, you know, the same system they use to, to grade meat, grade A, grade B, grade C, right. that you, you then deter, that's where they borrowed it from, by the way. Um, Is when that schools right? were developed, yeah, from the factory systems uh, for yeah. grading meat. And so, um, we those were some of the main ones that recognition that I needed someone to be to to like support decisions even though I was the person who was most informed to make the decision mm-hmm. you know this idea of external validation was just so prominent and needing to be right or seem right um you know the hierarchy of things feeling like okay where do I need to stand out who's my competition in this Mm -hmm. room or in this space those sort of things that separate us from uh, opportunities to connect with people as people (laughs) you know and for structure to emerge instead of for you to come in and control it and try to define it so would you say it's almost like a grooming 
it's I would say it's an indoctrination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like uh, what you're the assumption I'm making, but I should probably ask you and be a good interviewer. It's <laughs> like mm-hmm. if you're growing up that way and you're in school and this is what you're being prepped for, it creates in a student most likely this way of being in the world that will then spill over to a lot of other interactions and work, right? So exactly, what are the dangers then of this type of indoctrination? So one, you said how it spills over into work. So it spills over into everything. And mm-hmm. one of the major dangers is that it doesn't go away when you become an adult. It's not like you're sitting in the classroom from age, what, six or so to like 17, 18. Mm, and somebody's yeah. telling you when to go pee. Somebody's telling you how to part, you know, how to participate. Somebody's telling you what is good and what is not. Someone mm-hmm. is telling you that even though the person sitting next to you might be your very best friend in this instance, there are only a certain amount of scholarships, a certain amount of whatever. So you got to shine over that mm-hmm. person um, sharing notes or sharing, you know, like helping someone on a test, for example, you would get in trouble for that. You should never do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so those perceptions, those ways that you start to view yourself and view other people and view community, because a classroom is a community mm-hmm. that's controlled by one person um, who really doesn't even have a lot of control because teachers are also confined inside school systems mm-hmm. so that those things don't go away when you become an adult. So you take that same approach into adulthood. And then this is where a lot of the social justice issues that we have come up because the primary danger is that we do not know how to be ourselves together. We do not Mm. know how to be in community that is collaborative um, and communicative. We know how to create spaces that are competitive Mm. and that are focused on charisma and um, who gets the shiniest thing, the highest grade, uh, who's at the top of the hierarchy and how do I impress them at the expense of the other people around me. That's Mm -hmm. the problem. It doesn't go Mm -hmm. away. And what happens in a classroom or a school setting does not translate well into like actual communication with people. We end up having to learn, if we do, how to work in community together. And that's why you're seeing a lot of these social justice movements now that are really working on what does it mean to create community together and to organize and to create products and services and solve communal problems without the schoolish mindset that we've all been, you know, um, part of. And do you think that um, the schoolish, which which is a term, right, the schoolish mindset that you're talking about du- directly connects to corporate world, corporate, the corporate world and Completely. what we expect? Yeah, because yeah. I, that's, that's kind of what I'm hearing because it's funny, Akila, when you're talking, I have this old brain part of me as much as I'm receiving all of your this news which I didn't know about I have this old brain going but 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 you know you need don't you need because you (laughs) what about math what if how are you going to learn to read if no one makes you read how are you going to (laughs) strive to become right like won't we all become just you know lazy people I mean I'm getting feeling and and did you have any of those kind of feelings? Oh my gosh, Ronita, I had all of those things, all of those, because again, I was a stellar student, you Mm. know, migrating from another country and having very specific ideas from my family about the American dream and buying Mm -hmm. into that completely. And it's like, this is what you do. And this is the children you raise. And um, I had all of those things. And so de-schooling, that's another term, you'll you'll hear me say schoolish and schoolishness a lot, and also Mm -hmm. de-schooling. So my de-schooling journey 
as I mentioned to you, we left school, but then we were just doing school at home because in my mind, it's like, well, you still got to learn stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. how are you going to learn if you're not reading it in a book or I'm not making you or your dad isn't making you. And Mm -hmm. so we, I'll tell you a story about how that shifted for us is that we, um, as you and I were talking about before, when we started to recognize that so much of our lives were centered on our daughters being in school, including our schedules, including where we lived and all of that. When that was no longer the primary focus, you know, what time to take them to this thing or that thing, we realized that we could also be physically in different places and that it was actually pretty awesome because we didn't have to wait until the Christmas season to buy a plane ticket to Jamaica Mm -hmm. when it was super expensive. We could Mm -hmm. do it in the middle of April you know, Mm -hmm. or whatever other time. And so we did that and we were still, I got books shipped from the Georgia Virtual Academy to Jamaica so the girls can, you know, not fall behind and all the terms we use. And they were resistant to it. You know, (laughs) they wouldn't, Mm -hmm. they didn't want to read their books. They didn't want to do the things. I'm like, we're going to do science at the beach and we Mm -hmm. can look at the seashells and we'll know the layers of the blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And they were like, yes, to everything but the textbooks. And so out of sheer frustration, after a while, I was like, you know what? Fine. Don't learn anything. We'll just take a month off and you won't learn anything. And I won't try to teach you anything. And then after a month, you, we can come back to it and then we'll see, you know, what's happening. And that was in 2012. Mm-hmm. We still haven't revisited <laughs> the textbooks <laughs> because as it turns out, they were learning so much. And the issue was that I, as a schooled person, did not understand how to even identify how learning worked. Instead, what I understood is memorization and that you can perform for me, that you took in this information and that in this moment you can regurgitate Mm -hmm. it. But Mm -hmm. they started learning. um, I'm finished, Sage. I was actually doing Sage's hair while I was talking to you. Oh, (laughs) Um, (laughs) she's right there. (laughs) Yeah, she's gone now. Of grooming her locks. Um, so I started to recognize that, for example, Marley and Sage taught each taught themselves a language. Uh, they, there's two separate languages. They're languages that Chris and I know nothing about, and they learned it not through studying in the conventional sense, but they learned it through immersion. So for Marley, it's Japanese, and for Sage, it's Mandarin Chinese. And so because they were really interested in anime and manga and these, there was a particular um, anime called Hatalia that, that focused on different countries and it personified the countries, mm-hmm. they got interested in the languages of two particular countries and learned it through those cartoons, through um, music and through wow. videos. And then as a result of that, Sage, who um, identifies as an artist, among other things, as a result of this thing that personified countries, she started getting into flags and like the history of how countries develop flags. And so because of that, she learned a lot about geography and history and even economics, like how the money in one country, you know, and the language caused this one to absorb the other one and how Taiwan is connected to the, like mm, yeah. they, they learn things that I'm like, listen to me, I've gone to all the schooling And Mm -hmm. I don't even know what you're talking about. (laughs) How did you know that this is why these people from this country? So, so Chris and I started to recognize like, oh snap, we are the ones who don't understand learning. What we understand Mm -hmm. is schooling. 
So they became like voracious learners and they were just, and then we met other kids who were like that too, because it wasn't just our special awesome kids. It was just mm-hmm. other children who were given the space to explore their curiosities and then they could come to an adult and say, hey, by the way, I'm taking Japanese, I'm learning Japanese and I'm stuck, but I found this person on Skype or I found this, ha- this app called Hello Talk where I can mm-hmm. collaborate with somebody else. Can you pay for that or can you do, that's what the partnership looks like, not I'm going mm-hmm. to send you to this class to learn this thing. So to your question, Ronit, all of those things, you know, I've talked to other unschoolers whose children learn how to read because they were so frustrated at a video game that they couldn't understand and they didn't want <laughs> mom or dad telling them what, you know, being part of it. So that's how they learn it. These are normal stories. These are not mm-hmm. like exceptional children. Mm-hmm. So learning is a result. Probably you and I can relate. You can relate to that directly as someone running the podcast. I imagine mm-hmm. that you didn't go to a podcast training program to learn every single aspect of what you're doing. That's exactly right? the like- best. That's the best description because <laughs> um, it's true that I I feel like I hate learning new things. It's, that's my theoretic. You know, I don't like it. It's it's the work for me. But because I was motivated yeah. to do this show, I did learn, and I I really was not looking forward to learning the technology or any of it, you know, but I wanted to because I needed the product. I wanted to do this so much. And so then I learned it. Yeah. So that's a human trait. That's not um, a thing that really savvy entrepreneurial minded people do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a human trait. If you think about a baby, you know, even before that baby can walk, not an infant, but a baby, if you sit them down they're not going to stay where you put them. They're going to feel things out. They're going to go towards the colors they like. They're going to, you know, put something in their mouth and test it out. They're going to do all of these things. They're going to, I remember when my daughter discovered her hand and that she could control her own hand. Like, I remember that thing as she looked at it and opened and closed Mm -hmm. her fingers. And these, these are human traits. These are things that we do. And then in an environment, and we can talk a little bit about an unschooling environment, in an environment where adults are learning how to support that, you do not have to be the person who who simulates learning to say, hey, here is a book. Let us practice the letters or Mm. here's the history of you don't need to do that because they're going to everything is everything. That's a a saying we have in Jamaica. Everything is everything. So Mm. there's nothing that's in a vacuum. Anything that you're interested in will necessitate an exploration of another thing and another thing and another person. And so whatever you were doing when you were learning this process for creating your podcast, whatever you didn't know, you reached out to someone else. You probably hired someone to do the part that you knew you were not about to learn how to code at that level, but you had the sense to collaborate with someone else to do it so your website can look exactly how it needs to and it has the player at the bottom. You don't Mm -hmm. need to know anything about the player because Pat Flynn created it and he knows the stuff and you just press the buttons. Yet we sit in this this kind of old school mentality of like a library and a human and like, here, learn, read as many of the books as you can, try to keep as much of the information as you can, and that's how you learn. That's not true. It's collaborative, it's deep curiosity, it's connecting with other people, it's finding resources to help you know what you didn't know or to go Mm -hmm. further into what you do know. And that is essentially what unschooling is. 
Right. And it, it's, it makes me think about that resistance you can sometimes feel about studying or the resistance I've encountered in my own children about homework and about it, there's this idea inside of me, this ingrained feeling, and I would imagine I'm not alone, that that this is the way it's supposed to feel when you're doing school. Totally. Because totally. you're not supposed to want to do it because it's, quote, school. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying is that there's probably a reason why it doesn't feel good. I'm right? saying there's like, absolutely definitely a reason that it doesn't feel good because it goes against the human um, condition and way of understanding mm-hmm. learning as organic And that even in doing the things that you want to do as a learner, because we're all learners, there are things that you'll end up doing that you didn't want to do, but are a part of your learning journey. That Mm -hmm. is not the same as saying, well, of course, you're not supposed to like school. Of course, you're not supposed to like your job. Of course, you're supposed to be Mm -hmm. excited about vacating your life, this term vacation on the weekends, because it's such a burning building Monday through Friday. Mm -hmm. No, that's Mm -hmm. that's not true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what is the, what, when you think about being colonized and you think about schooling, what is the connection there? So to be colonized, let me respond with a question to you. What, what do you think it means to be colonized? Like, how would you explain that to someone? Well, I feel a little bit self-conscious because I'm a white person and, you know, I've, I feel like I've had the advantages of that. So mm-hmm. I will venture to answer your question knowing that I may not do this well. Sure. Um, but I think it means to be populated, uh, to be, you know, inhabited by something that isn't supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So and then when we go into that a, a more literally or a little bit more detailed, it's to say that there is um, a, a place that is sovereign, right? A place that exists. Mm-hmm. Um, a space that is inhabited by people. And then Mm -hmm. another set of people come in and say, this is ours now. Um, This is what's best for this space in order for you to assimilate into what is comfortable and safe for us and our goals. Here's what you need to do. And if you don't do that, there are severe consequences. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing that happens for us as even before we get to school, because schoolishness calls for parents to colonize our children. We say, you are sovereign land, you're, you're born, and I'm going to control the space that you are. I'm going to determine what you do, how you show up. And some of that is loving, right? I'm going to make sure you're clean. I'm going to make mm-hmm. sure that you have you know, food to eat, all of these things. Mm-hmm. But also as you grow up, as you come out of infancy and you know, baby, I'm saying, here is what you need to do with your time. It doesn't matter to me what your ideas of who you are are. This is the religion that I practice. This is where we go to school. This is how we sound. This is how I need you to look to other people because you're connected to me. So I'm going to, whatever it is that is organic to you, you see it, right? All of those things Mm -hmm. that are organic to you are irrelevant because what I am trying to do is create a particular type of people, a particular type of space. And in order to do that, your crazy language can't work. Your crazy ideas cannot work. And as a matter of fact, in order to ensure that you assimilate, I will put consequences in place. For example, what they did with uh, Native American people with the schools that they had to make sure that they couldn't speak their language and they didn't look a certain Mm -hmm. way. And we do the same thing. And so to be colonized means to take something that is free and to go in and put your ideas upon that space and, in, and put in consequences to minimize the chance that the person 
or the people do what is organic to them. And so Mm -hmm. school does the same thing. And we as parents end up being using these same tools of oppression um, because we think that we know what is best for that child. But so many of us listening can think about how much our parents, even if we had awesome parents um, who loved us and who cared about us and who we could talk to about some things, they still had very specific ideas of who we should be. And some of that was tied Mm -hmm. to their own um, wounds. You know, when we talk about people who migrated to another place, it's their own Mm -hmm. dreams and ambitions. And when you do that, you inevitably close off the dreams, ambitions, ideas, and curiosities of the human themselves. You view them Mm -hmm. as a potential result and you put studenthood over the whole person, above personhood. And that's, that's the connection there. So we use these colonization tactics um, and we take them, we, we call them parenting tactics. We say, yes, I'm going to force you to do this. Yes, I'm going to, your bodily autonomy doesn't matter to me because you need to wear this because the school culture says this is what you wear. You have five or yeah. six-year-olds lined up with their index finger over their lips so that they can be quiet mm-hmm. walking to the, mm-hmm. co- what? Like, think about how school right, looks so right. similar to a prison. Think about how they're mm-hmm. run. That's what mm-hmm. I mean by, yeah, that's how they're connected. Yeah, and there are some very, it's, it's when I think about it, um, I was going to say that there are some very obvious types of um, schools and environments where it seems kind of mili- military and it seems very organized and it seems like the, the students are actually very obviously kind of corralled to do this. And then there are other schools where it seems a little more subtle, but really when you start to look at it, that whole format, that whole way of being is all to kind of conform, to make everyone conform and, and follow this. There mold. you go. Absolutely. Well, because they need it. You know, I think the idea would be the argument is, you know, the knee jerk argument is, well, otherwise there would be no control. <laughs> right. And then unfortunately we went to your early question about school wounds, Ronit, we end up internalizing that we believe that we absolutely need someone to tell us what to do and when to go pee and when to go to this Mm -hmm. place. We need that. So we take that in. So it doesn't just show up in work. It also shows up in our personal relationships. We hold our partners responsible for our joy, for all these other things, because we are groomed. We are indoctrinated Mm -hmm. to believe that it is something we are not enough. We could not control ourselves. We, it would be like Lord of the flies, when the reality (laughs) is, right? But the reality is there are so many spaces, especially a lot of self-directed education centers now that are showing us, reminding us, calling on our own knowings to say, wait a minute, we can absolutely be in community together. We do not need a hierarchy that is a governing body that is actually separate from the people themselves. What if Mm -hmm. self-governance and communal governance were skills that we practice? What if we understood how to, instead of penalizing someone for making a mistake, we learned how to work with those mistakes, even if the mistake harmed someone else. So we think about things Mm -hmm. like restorative justice. You know, these ideas are birthed from the opposite, the literal antithesis of schoolishness, which is not Mm -hmm. to have a structure where we have one person controlling and other people conforming or dealing with consequences, but instead We have communication that is centering all of the people. We have collaboration. We have tools that are in place for managing 
human connection and learning and growth instead of consequence and conformity. Right. And when, when I look at it through that lens, it seems so much of the system that's currently in place is based on fear. It's, it's too scary to think of everyone having all this self-determination. And so the system is sort of in place to keep everyone in order. Absolutely. And then we as parents, we as adults, not only parents, we, take, we embody that. And so we become that version mm-hmm. of that. And that's what Chris and I realized, like, oh, my God, who's, who's in support of Marley and Sage? Because we are essentially extensions of the system at home. The teacher tells us what they're doing, and then we govern them according to that. Oh, great. You're doing good. Mm-hmm. Keep going. Or, nope, she's not happy with what you're doing. You know, you need to get da-da-da-da. We are extensions of the system. So who's listening to people, if there's a system and then there are people in place to enforce that system, who's listening to people? And what unschooling and de-schooling says is, no, we do not need to have systems in place that it, where people have to figure out how to contort and conform. And when you talk about marginalized people, the level of contortionism is extreme and the consequence is far mm-hmm. more extreme. Instead of having that, self-directed education of which unschooling is one form says how do we set up systems that are inclusive of people how do we create emergent structures that are informed quite heavily by the needs of people and the processes that actually move forward the agenda of people as opposed to another system that says great now you're a good um, person for this factory or this job that they're all factories, mm-hmm. or for the, some other system that is a version of this same one. Mm-hmm. And so, when you do, you have experiences of of witnessing people that you don't, you're not raising people who are not your children, uh, suffering under the system or wilting. Is it hard to watch that? Of course, it is. I mean, I see it all the time. Again, particularly for me as a black woman. I see it all the time. We grow up with this thing. That's why I use the term contortionism. We mm-hmm. we not only already, as a black person, because I don't want to speak to all different types of people of color, but for me specifically and other black people, um, and of course we're not a monolith, oftentimes mm-hmm. the same, the layers of issues for anyone, having someone tell you like who you are, how you need to show up, how to be impressive is problematic. But in mm-hmm. a system, particularly in the U.S., where that is the design, that is the structure, I mean, literally the laws treated us as, what was it, two-fifths, three-fifths of a human, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, all of these things that are in place systemically. On top of that, you're inside a system that says you need to perform at this level so that your humanity can be validated by someone who there's all these other things around media telling you otherwise. We see it all mm-hmm. the time. You go in with a mask. You go in and the very one of the first things is even with our hair. Your hair doesn't look a way that white people understand, so you need to change it. There are literally now laws in place to protect black people from the school system and the, the issues that were happening because we showed up with our hair the way that it grew out of our head. Clean, groomed, just how it grew out of our head. That's one example of the type of harm that happens inside schoolishness. How we sound, the idea that culturally in our language, we, we do and say things that in the system says that this is not okay. So you're viewed as less intelligent. For example, if you have, say, a Southern drawl, 
right? That's something that I experienced coming from Jamaica and then Florida, where people don't have the same type of Southern draw that they have, you know, in the Bible Belt part, like Georgia mm -hmm. and the, the Carolinas and that sort of thing. I was under the impression my indoctrination made me feel like if somebody taught like this, that it's like, mm -hmm. oh dear, okay. You know, <laughs> those are examples. So, so I'm separating myself from another person based on this systemic idea that in order to be intelligent or appear intelligent, you needed to speak like this, as mm -hmm. opposed to talking like layers or talking like this, you know, when we talk about like some black people and Ebonics and the, the you know, African-American mm -hmm. vernacular, AAVE, those sort of things that show up. So right away, your humanness, your intelligence, mm -hmm. your personhood is compromised because of things that are tied to your culture or the color of your skin, you know? All yeah. of these things are normal parts and the idea is that you, as a non-white person, should want to raise up out of those negative things <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and school is the way for you to do that. So for a lot of us, the layers of the harm of school include a vilification, a vilifying of our cultural norms that mm -hmm. then separate us from each other that says the closer I am to whiteness, the better I am. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's one example. Mm -hmm. Do you find that this unschooling could work for children who are even who are different from your children? Because you've you've talked about how your children have been noted to be talented and gifted, and they sound to be very curious. Do you think that children who work at a slower tempo will also benefit from unschooling? So I would challenge immediately the term slower. Um, tempo because it's a comparison that I think is not um, I don't understand that as how learning works so even with the talented and gifted thing mm -hmm. that label I brought that up in the context of what we were talking about it's not something that I earlier right yes it's not something that I um, subscribe to it's not something that I believe in I think it's another tool of oppression because all it says is how you are mm -hmm. fit into our ideas of how learning works. That's all it says. And it's inside of a system itself that doesn't right. even understand learning. It understands schooling. So, so to that question, right. I'm going to so morph it a little bit and to say, I think what you're asking is that's okay. Mm -hmm. We all do all the time, all of us. And, and we, and that's why de-schooling is mm -hmm. important. We'll talk about what that means and how we do that. Cause that's not a Ronit thing. That's just like adults, mm -hmm particularly living in the U.S., all of us are going to deal with that stuff. So I don't want you to feel like, oh, my God, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's all of us. But the question I think you're, you're getting at is, does this work for everyone? If somebody isn't considered sharp or whatever and they're not, yeah. Okay, so mm -hmm. I've, I've never come across a person who isn't interested in anything. So, the, so I, I definitely want to challenge the idea of slower because it's not a comparison. So though the idea mm -hmm. of a slower pace is directly tied to schooling. So I understand why you asked the question. But really, what, what we're one in unschooling, what we look at is not slow or fast mm -hmm. or the pace that someone learns. It's what they're interested in. So, for, for, so if you have a child, for example who likes to watch YouTube videos <laughs> and likes to draw and likes to play Minecraft. 
for a lot of parents that would be like, yeah, no, my kid isn't really interested in anything. What that actually means is that you don't know what they're interested in because you probably haven't asked because you're looking for the cues, the schoolish cues of the checklist things. So what that is, is an opportunity to investigate what that child is into and try to minimize your judgment. So if they're watching YouTube videos all day, um, what are the videos about? You know, um, can you ask them what about those videos are interesting? Because you might think that the video is just about like stupid people playing pranks all day and how could this be educational at all? But that child might be looking at, for example, one episode of the podcast, we talked about a parent, um, a guy who works in Hollywood. And he said he spent so many years, his parents, for whatever reason, allowed him to just watch copious amounts of TV. And then when the internet came around, you know, he was doing that too as an adult. And they thought it's like, you know, he wasn't doing anything. What is he doing? But he was looking, the way that he viewed the videos was very different than how his parents were viewing the videos. He started to pick up on different cues that allowed him. Now I think he produces content for people, you know, in Hollywood. He learned because he was viewing it in a very different way than how other people were viewing it, he learned certain skills that he could then apply as an adult to production and all these other aspects. So our job when we have a kid that we think isn't interested in anything is to become educated on what they're actually interested in and how to support them. Because there's no person that isn't interested in anything. Of course, we have people who are um, neurologically different than others. Like we're all neurologically different, but when we talk about neurodiverse children, for example, um, their needs will be different. Um, the type of support may be different, but there's no one, if the adults know how to support an environment for self-directed learning, there's no kid, whether they're considered sharp inside of the schoolish system or not, that doesn't respond to having the space to explore and express themselves. So yes, it can work for any kid, even if that kid, and particularly when that kid doesn't fit into the checkbox things of school. Well, so that that definitely set me straight. <laughs> and it's funny because you can you can feel like you understand uh, the the traps that you fall into, but then you can fall into a whole new trap because you 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 may have blinders on in places you didn't realize, you know. Yep. Yeah. All and all of us do that. You know, that is a normal mm -hmm. part of our work um, in de-schooling, right? You don't have to be an unschooler to de-school. All de-schooling essentially means. Um, is that you're recognizing and questioning and challenging the things that you thought were absolute, the things that mm -hmm. you thought were absolutes. You are now, you've had some ahas, you've had some realizations, and now you're thinking, wait a minute, you know, is this actually the case? My, my definition for de-schooling is shedding the programming and habits that resulted from other people's agency over your time your body, your thoughts, or your actions, and then designing and practicing beliefs that align with your desire to thrive, to be happy, to understand, and to succeed. And so the questions that you asked, I like that you're asking them because those are the types of questions that we have, all of us, mm -hmm. pretty much, mm -hmm. or most of us. Mm -hmm. And so in, when we ask ourselves these questions, it was happening even in the conversation with you and I, where you'd say, yeah, because this thing is attached to this thing. And I noticed that. And so we all can do that. And then as we do that, 
these tools of liberation start to show up because we say, wait a minute, this is a problem in this, like for my family, I realized how much Chris and I were the oppressors. You know, mm -hmm. we're in a system mm -hmm. where we are oppressed, but we were also the oppressors when it came to mm -hmm. our children and learning. And so now mm -hmm. we say, based on what I'm understanding about learning from observing my children and other children in my own life and questioning things, what are some of the ways that I can back away from trying to control how they learn and instead try to follow the lead of what's happening, which doesn't mean, by the way, that I'm not going to suggest things and offer things. It's called strewing and unschooling, S-T-R-E-W-I-N-G. We strew things, mm -hmm. we offer things, because of course, there's some things that you might not even know you don't know or that you're not interested in. But the difference is that when we strew, when we make an offer, we respect the no. If they say, no, I'm not interested in that, we may question it and we might ask why and we might try to offer it in a different way because we think mm -hmm. it's important or interesting, but we respect that we're partnering with them and we don't offer things from a space of fear, or maybe we do because we still have a lot of the same fears. We offer mm -hmm. it from a space of fear, but what we're guided by, we allow the reality of understanding how learning works to mm -hmm. talk us down off the ledge you know, to express mm -hmm. to our children. I'm really nervous about um, you not reading often because it makes me uncomfortable because I feel like reading is such an important tool. So I have this course right here. I have this thing. Can we test it out? And you can see if there are aspects of it that you like. So then we do those sort of things together and learn how to support them. Or they say no. And then a month from then you realize that they're reading and it's no big deal and no one even cares anymore. <laughs> because there's no right, actual right. correlation, by the way, between someone learning how to read early and what happens for them later in life. Like it doesn't make you more intelligent if you learn how to read at four versus 10, for example. Mm -hmm. But we right. know when we talk about marginalized communities, our, we, we need access to the tools because we have different layers of things that get in the way of our capacity to just survive, let alone mm -hmm. thrive. And so we have different layers of fears because we feel like we need all the education in order to just, you know, survive in this oppressive system. So mm -hmm. these questions are mm -hmm. important that you ask because then we can speak to, you know, how do we deal with these realities and these fears in the middle of knowing that learning is actually an organic thing and we can figure out how to support it. Yeah. And it reminds me a little bit about um, some friends of mine had children who, when they were toddlers, were, were taking a little bit longer. And I, and I put that in quotes too, longer to reach sure. their milestones. Um, and, and pediatricians had them go to OT, you know, occupational therapy, because there were some concerns about leg movements and feet and everything. And eventually mm -hmm. those kids walked, they crawled, they did everything they needed to do. They just didn't do it within the timeline, you know, and there's, there's nothing wrong with those kids. Yep, exactly, exactly. And even just this timeline idea, that's not how we work as humans. We learn things at different paces. You know, we then we develop these insecurities that we don't read well or we don't read well out loud and we don't we develop all of these insecurities based on these milestones that are not actually rooted in human development as far as learning, even with the physical things like walking and talking and all of that, we see these mm -hmm. parallels all the time. And so unschooling, even though the terminology causes us to believe that it's about schooling, right? And I like that mm -hmm. it does that. It really is a portal to think about 
learning and relationships and the ways that we use comparison out of fear as opposed to learning how to be ourselves together and how to support the fact that my kid might never give a crap about math, but they're super mm-hmm. interested in this other thing and could be amazing at it and can then hire the person to deal with their basic freaking finances because it's not that complicated, <laughs> right? Like we, we're, yeah. that's what we start to learn how to do. <laughs> right. And so before before I I learn a little bit more about Raising Free People Network, can you talk a little bit about what your what your years look like and and what can parents do who might need to go to work all day and can't be home with their children and yet don't want to put them in a school environment? Yeah. So I'll speak to that first. So um, unschooling is not the way that we are doing it at home um, in a sense or traveling is one way. And the purpose of unschooling is that you're designing a life path that makes sense for you and yours. So a lot of families where one or both parents work outside of the home or single parents who work outside of the home, they are a part of unschooling communities, or they're part of homeschooling co-ops and collectives, or they're part of all these different unschooling type of schools like agile learning centers and all these other centers that have different names that have um, a self-directed ethos underpinning. Um, You have Sudbury schools and freedom schools who have a similar thing like self-directed education. So you have things that you can buy into or be part of in communally that don't require you to do sort of like the standard school at home or be at home format. Because again, in self-directed education, you as the adult are not the teacher you are a partner, so you're not who mm-hmm. they're relying upon. So parents do it all the time without being in the home um, through those other collaborative mm-hmm. means. Okay. And so for us, because we recognize, as I mentioned before, that because our girls weren't in school and our whole lives weren't centered on school culture, that we could travel and do different things. So we went back home to Jamaica at first and then started going to different cities and countries and you know, in those spaces, in terms of what it looks like, it just, it just looks like us living together. And in some cities, the girls may go to an Mm -hmm. agile learning center, because I'm really loving the, a lot of the premises around agile learning really connect with unschooling for us. So in some instances, like when we're here in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. there's an agile learning center, Heartwood Agile Learning that we love. And sometimes the girls go there because they don't necessarily want to go every day. So we don't make them. Um, And then there are other places Mm -hmm. where there's not a a space outside that they're going to to be around other young people, but that happens because we're living together and people exist. So they might go to a library or a park Mm -hmm. or whatever it is that that they're into. They go to a thing and people are there and sometimes the people are their age and sometimes they're not and they don't need them to be because they don't, you know, the only place in life where you're going to be around other people who are around your age all the time is in a classroom. Outside of that, that's actually not even normal. Mm-hmm. So they, <laughs> right? That's not normal. <laughs> so they, I know. yeah. <laughs> and you know, I think about it sometimes when when my when my children go to school, and I think about the the toll it takes. My kids are in middle school right now. I I think about sometimes about going to school and going to a place where everyone is your age and everyone is going through their life and everyone's hormones are erupting and that you have to be maybe on or you have to be seen every day. And I think sometimes about, you know, how hard it can be beyond just having to learn and the academics 
to be in a social soup every day, <laughs> five days a week, because, you know, that's like, even when you go to a job as an adult, if you have a regular job, you can kind of, yeah. you know, block people out sometimes. Exactly. You can kind of have your own alone time. So I think it's it's a big toll emotionally. And that's another example of the colonization, the idea that you don't have the space to be yourself at a time, especially as you talk about that pubescent stage, mm -hmm. when you there and no matter what's going on in your life, it's irrelevant in the classroom. You have right. children who go to class hungry, right? And they don't, there's nothing that's gonna happen until lunchtime. You have children who are dealing with psychological trauma, you know, or their parents are. None of those things matter because what you need to be is on. You need to perform. You need to look like everything is all together. And then that we carry that all the way out of school when nobody's making us do it. As you gave the example of at your job, you can have your, you probably won't. What you'll do is pretend that whole time, which is why you are like dying to have a vacation or the weekend mm -hmm. or so you can go drink or smoke or do whatever it is that you need to do to like deal with it because we develop vices instead of actually understanding how to be ourselves and be ourselves together. So I love that you brought that up, Ronit, because that's mm -hmm. something that we, that's a school wound. That's mm -hmm. an example of that mm -hmm. because you're so right. They're in that environment and all they need to do is like basically try to shine, you know, mm -hmm. try to be the, the one that's shiny and try mm -hmm. to not cause a problem for anyone. Right. And they're exhausted. They're exhausted and by the end of the day. They're exhausted. They're bored, you know, because it's because you're not actually learning. You're showing that you're retaining the information that someone is giving you and that you mm -hmm. can perform for that, which is not mm -hmm. the same thing as learning. I went mm -hmm. to a lot of school and most of the stuff that I actually would say that I have learned happened sort of on the sidelines of schooling, not directly in schooling. Right. I believe right. that I am who I am in spite of school. And because of some people that I met, including some teachers who unschooling says, we want those people in environments where teachers, for example, can fully be themselves, that they can get to learn each student and create like learning collaborative opportunities that are based on that teacher's wisdom and knowledge and passion and, the, and what they see in that student as opposed to now in schooling where teachers don't get to do that because they're beholding to something else that doesn't trust them either. Right. Right. Yeah. They can't. They, they're not they can't. To. They mm -hmm. are suffering inside that system. And our teachers work so hard to try to be available for students despite these things. And as unschoolers, we say, come on out of that. Come on out of that. Even though we know that a lot of our children are in that system. For me, reform is not something that I am remotely interested in. What I'm interested in is building something outside of that systemic, oppressive, racist, capitalist, ridiculous system that says people who are passionate about education and young people as learners can work together to create emergent structures where we can thrive, where we can collaborate, where teachers can do what they do without having to do it in this foolish, systemic, ineffective way. Such a good conversation. Yeah. I just, I, I'm like so grateful to, you know, to learn all this because I really didn't know about it until I found your work. So where can people learn yeah. more about your network and about what you're doing? Yeah. Thank you for asking. So raisingfreepeople.com is my online home. 
That's where um, you can get to my podcast from there. I host Fair of the Free Child podcast. It's a weekly podcast and you can hear from lots of people, not just me, (laughs) who are figuring this out together or who have figured it out or even some of the issues within it because I certainly... I I try my best not to like romanticize this thing Mm -hmm. because we're still people together. And sometimes I say, look, it's even harder because Mm -hmm. when your kid is free, right, when they speak the language of freedom and as the adult, you speak the language of oppression, that is really hard. It's easier to be like, do what I said because Mm -hmm. I said it and I'm not going to see you again till three o'clock anyway when you get off the school bus. Mm -hmm. Like we talk about all of the nuances on Fear of the Free Child podcast and you can access it wherever podcasts are, wherever you listen. Mm -hmm. Um, I also have Raising Free People Unschooled. I have an online unschool where you can take courses or book a consultation with me and my oldest daughter, Marley, who's now 16. Mm -hmm. We do workshops together all over the US and South Africa around what this work can look like, you know, and particularly for marginalized folks who have all these other layers. But what I'm finding, which is so beautifully interesting, is that on my podcast, most of the people who like evangelize it at a level <laughs> that it's like mm-hmm. ridiculous and I end up getting these speaking gigs and all, they're, they're white people who mm-hmm. are like, I've seen this thing, I've experienced this thing and I'm in community with other people and I don't want to be a part of the problem. And being able to listen to your podcast is allowing me to decenter myself and to listen and to learn. And a lot of this applies to me and my children too. So it helps them in their home and it helps them to be better allies in community because because of these issues, we don't even know how to be together, you know? Mm-hmm. So a lot of my work now rests on the, the focus on equity and inclusion because we don't know how to do that because the system, it doesn't care about that. It actually thrives on us being separate and seeing ourselves as, you know, bad versus good and da da da. da. So on raisingfreepeople.com, you'll get access to the online unschool, you'll get access to the podcast and, you know, all of the different ways that um, I'm allowing this work to work me and mine. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Akila. I'm just, I'm so happy to have this conversation. I know I said it before, but my brain is just firing (laughs) all over the place here. I have, you know, so much to think about and, and I, I'm very happy that you had the time to come on. Thank you so much for asking. I appreciate it. As I told you, I love even the concept of your podcast <laughs> and I'll now oh. be listening. Yes, I love it. It's beautiful, Thank brilliant. You. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you and, so much. and I appreciate being a part of the conversation because I do know that because this is such a human thing, like it has the words unschooling and de-schooling and self-directed education. But for many of us, just like with you, it's really an old knowing. It's something that resonates at the core of our bellies and that it causes us to then disrupt our regularly scheduled programming and say, hmm, how can I be in a more equitable relationship with my child? What does it even mean to be in an equitable relationship with someone else? Can I start to question that? Can I move in that direction? So thank you for the space to offer that to your listeners, because that's my job. <laughs> well, I'm great. I'm grateful to you, and I can't wait to share this with my listeners. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, too, Lily. Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. 
You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening. 